Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome back to the Mysteries Abound podcast, everyone. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 92. This show is entitled, Everything We Have Been Taught About Our Origins is a Lie. I found this as a link on our Facebook page for the Origins and Mysteries Abound podcast. It was posted by one of our listeners. And as I love this stuff so much, I'm going to make it the first article in our show this week. So, from the www.maltonow.com website... Everything we have been taught about our origins is a lie. And it's written by Graham Pick. In June 1936, Max Hahn and his wife Emma were on a walk beside a waterfall near to London, Texas, when they noticed a rock with wood protruding from its core. They decided to take the oddity home and later cracked it open with a hammer and chisel. What they found within shocked the archaeological and scientific community. Embedded in the rock was what appeared to be some type of ancient man-made hammer. A team of archaeologists analysed and dated it. The rock encasing the hammer was dated to more than 400 million years old. The hammer itself turned out to be more than 500 million years old. Additionally, a section of the wooden handle had begun the metamorphosis into coal. The hammer's head, made of more than 96% iron, is far more pure than anything nature could have achieved without assistance from relatively modern smelting methods. In 1889, near Nampa, Idaho, whilst workers were boring an artesian well, A small figurine made of baked clay was extracted from a depth of 320 feet. To reach this depth, the workers had to cut through 15 feet of basalt lava and many other strata below that. That in itself does not seem remarkable, 
until one considers that the very top layer of lava had been dated to at least 15 million years old. It is currently accepted by science and geology that coal is a byproduct of decaying vegetation. The vegetation becomes buried over time and is covered with sediment. The sediment eventually fossilizes and becomes rock. This natural process of coal formation takes up to 400 million years to accomplish. Anything that is found in lumps of coal or in coal seams during mining had to have been placed or dropped into the vegetation before it was buried in sediment. In 1944, as a ten-year-old boy, Newton Anderson dropped a lump of coal in his basement and it broke in half as it hit the floor. What he discovered inside defies explanation based upon current scientific orthodoxy. Inside the coal was a handcrafted brass alloy bell with an iron clapper and sculptured handle. When an analysis was carried out, it was discovered that the bell was made from an unusual mix of metals, different from any known modern alloy production, including copper, zinc, tin, arsenic, iodine and selenium. The seam from whence this lump of coal was mined is estimated to be 300 million years old. These extraordinary discoveries, although bizarre, are not unique or even uncommon. There are literally thousands of them collecting dust, locked away from public scrutiny in the vaults of museums throughout the world. There are many other unusual reported finds, including the following. The Morrisonville, Illinois Times on June 11, 1891, reported how Mrs. S.W. Culp found a circular-shaped 8-carat gold chain, about 10 inches long, embedded in a lump of coal after she broke it apart to put in her scuttle. The chain was described as antique and of quaint workmanship. Displayed in a museum at Glen Rose, Texas, is a cast-iron pot reportedly found in a large lump of coal in 1912 by a worker feeding coal into the furnace of a power plant. When he split open the coal, the worker said the pot fell out, leaving its impression in the coal. Yet another report found in the Epoch Times told of a Colorado rancher who in the 1800s broke open a lump of coal dug from a vein some 300 feet below the surface and discovered a strange-looking iron thimble. The Salzburg Cube is yet another ancient puzzle found by a worker named Rydl in an Austrian foundry in 1885. Like the others, this man broke open a block of coal and found a metal cube embedded inside. Recent analysis established the object was of forged iron and obviously handcrafted. The coal it was found in was millions of years old. The list of such items goes on and on and on. Welcome to the world of uparts or out-of-place artefacts. Out-of-place artefacts are so named because conventional scientific wisdom, an oxymoron if ever there was one, states that these artefacts shouldn't exist based upon currently accepted beliefs regarding our origins and history. These discoveries are out of place in the orthodox timeline of human history. The unusual methods of the conformist scientific community when faced with such anomalies is to attempt to debunk their reported age, or perhaps endeavour to discredit the source of the report 
or even the reporter. If this approach fails, then usually the artefacts themselves are banished to the shadowy vaults of museums and warehouses, never to be seen again. If these unusual artefacts were one-offs, then perhaps one could be forgiven for accepting the view espoused by the mainstream scientific and archaeological community that they are hoaxes or misreported stories. However, when one realises that thousands upon thousands of these anomalous artefacts have been discovered and reported over the years, then one may need to re-evaluate one's acceptance of the integrity of the mainstream archaeology and science. Occasionally an honest archaeologist will attempt to reveal to the public the true age and origin of such anomalous objects. They will question the accepted beliefs of their mainstream peers. They usually find that their career ends quite abruptly. Unfortunately, the majority just accept what they are taught in school and university without question. That is how our educational system is designed. It does not encourage individuality or originality. It purely indoctrinates one with established beliefs and dogma. If one requires evidence of this mainstream mentality, one need look no further than the realms of psychiatry. Modern psychiatry seeks to demonise and declare mentally ill anyone who deviates from what is regarded as the norm. These so-called mental health professionals have even invented a new mental disorder named Oppositional Defiant Disorder, or ODD. This newly invented condition is listed in the latest instalment of the Industry's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which dubs people who do not conform to what those in charge declare to be normal as mentally insane. So there you have your proof. I'm obviously an unmitigated nutter and completely insane. At least that is what those in authority would like everyone to believe. Anyway, I digress. On one side of the field we have the Darwinists and their theory of evolution, trying to establish the extremely flawed view that we have somehow evolved into highly intelligent sentient beings from a primordial blob of gunge, miraculously brought to life by an electrical storm billions of years ago. Perhaps one of this cult's followers could explain to me when consciousness evolved and provide proof. I await with bated breath. On the other side we have the creationists, with the belief that some omnipotent visible being who lives in the clouds waved his magic wand about 7,000 years ago and created the earth and everything on it. Again, the adherents of this equally flawed theory rely on nothing more than a book called the Bible for their proof of this concept. The fact that this book has been bastardised during translation numerous times during its existence has been rewritten to certain individuals' personal preference on a number of occasions and has had many complete chapters omitted is irrelevant to its followers. All they require is faith. Proof and evidence is not a prerequisite. One couldn't get more opposing beliefs if one tried and both camps adhere to their beliefs voraciously and with unshakable fervour. Yet neither are based on any kind of factual or hard evidence. The reality is that the origin of the human race is a total enigma. No one, anywhere, actually knows how old humanity is or how and where it originated. 
it is a complete mystery. Yet from birth one is indoctrinated into one or the other of the above factions, with no questions asked or alternative opinions allowed. The problem the mainstream have with these anomalous uparts is that they throw into question every single established belief there is regarding our past. It seems that everywhere we look, we find things that contradict much of the scientific orthodoxy of today. The scientific establishment will never acknowledge or admit that these artefacts are authentic. To do so would be to admit that they are completely wrong about our origins and consequently invalidate all of the textbooks used to indoctrinate us and our children. The discovery of Uparts completely annihilates the comparatively recent theory of evolution. If, as this hypothesis would make us believe, modern humans only evolved 200,000 years ago, or thereabouts, one has to ask how man-made artefacts found in substrata originating millions of years ago could be explained. Alternatively, the advocates of creationism have a very quaint way of acknowledging the existence of Uparts, and bizarrely actually believe that Uparts substantiate their worldview. Creationists just completely disregard the established dating methods and declare every single recognised archaeological and geological process null and void. They would have us all believe that coal seams, rock strata, fossils, minerals, precious stones and every other antediluvian element took only a few thousand years to form. Yet the psychiatric establishment would have me labelled as a loony for questioning this baloney. Go figure. There will no doubt be readers who, similar to the predictable conservative archaeologists, and probably due to their indoctrinated belief system, will also dismiss the aforementioned uparts as hoaxes or forgeries. Perhaps they would like to consider and offer an explanation for the following. It is an accepted belief that humans and dinosaurs did not coexist. According to conventional academia, dinosaurs roamed the earth between 65 and 225 million years ago. Whereas the earliest upright biped humanoid, Homo erectus, only appeared about 1.8 million years ago. However, in 1968, a paleontologist named Stan Taylor began excavations of fossilised dinosaur footprints discovered in the bed of the Paluxy River near Glen Rose, Texas. What he unearthed shocked and dumbfounded the scientific community. Alongside the dinosaur tracks, in exactly the same Cretaceous fossilised strata were well-preserved human footprints. The immediate reaction of evolutionists, archaeologists and science in general was to debunk the find as a hoax. They were carved into the rock by hoaxes, or they are not human footprints but more dinosaur footprints that have been eroded to look human, were the arguments most commonly proposed. However, their line of reasoning falls somewhat flat when one asks why only the human footprints were eroded and not also the three-toed dinosaur prints. Additionally, one has to consider, if the human prints were carved as a hoax, how did the hoaxes manage to carve further human footprints that continued under the bedrock that was later removed from the side of the river? Since the initial discovery, hundreds more human footprints have been discovered and unearthed, 
both in the Paluxy and in many other places around the globe. Either these hoaxes have unlimited time and budget, or someone is telling porkies. Next one needs to consider another find discovered in a hundred million year old Cretaceous limestone. A fossilised human finger, which was found along with a child's tooth and human hair. This figure has been subjected to numerous scientific tests and analysis. Sectioning revealed the typical porous bone structure expected in a human finger. Additionally, a CAT scan and MRI scan identified joints and traced tendons throughout the length of the fossil. This is one find that science cannot explain away as a hoax. There is, however, another find of recent years that blows all the others into a cocked hat regarding age. Over the past few decades, miners near the little town of Otterstal in western Transvaal, South Africa, have been digging up hundreds of mysterious metal spheres. The spheres measure between 25 and 100 millimetres in diameter, and some are etched with three parallel grooves completely running around the equator. Two types of spheres have been found. One is composed of a solid bluish metal with flecks of white, the other is hollowed out and filled with a spongy white substance. These spheres are reportedly so delicately balanced that even with modern technology, they would need to be made in a zero-gravity environment to attain these characteristics. These objects have become known as the Klerkstorp spheres. Geologists have attempted to debunk these artefacts as natural formations or limonite concretions. They fail to explain sufficiently how these formations occurred naturally, with perfectly straight and perfectly spaced grooves around the centres. Perhaps the real reason for such fervent attempted debunking by the scientific community is that the rock in which these spheres were found is pre-Cambrian and dated to 2.8 billion years old. Whether one wishes to accept these out-of-place artefacts as genuine or not is, I suppose, down to personal beliefs. Evolutionists refuse to accept them, as to do so would mean re-evaluating their whole indoctrinated belief system. They will even stoop to producing outright fantasy in their attempts to discredit these discoveries. If that fails, then they will just pretend that they do not exist and then hide them away forever. Creationists, on the other hand, willingly accept them as some kind of bizarre proof that the universe is only about 7,000 years old and totally ignore any evidence from any source to the contrary. They continue to cling to a medieval belief system based on purely blind faith. How quaint. Personally, I don't belong to either camp. I keep an open mind regarding our origins. I don't have any particular philosophy on the subject, but rather prefer to adapt my understanding as new evidence becomes available. My only current belief based upon all the available facts to date is that the human race has inhabited this planet for millions of years longer than is presently accepted. I realise that I will never discover the answer to the question of our origin. The human race has been searching for this answer since the dawn of time, and it still evades us. Everything we have been taught in our schools and universities about our origin and history is based upon nothing more than speculation and hypothesis. 
There is not a single provable fact out there that conclusively answers the question, where do we come from? What I will continue to do, however, is question everything, and not just blindly accept any mainstream viewpoint, because it happens to be fashionable at the time. If that means one day I get a knock at my door from men in white coats holding a straitjacket, then so be it. Well, one could say that was a little controversial in a few ways, but certainly some of those ooh parts are extremely fascinating. I just find this stuff really interesting. If you'd like to visit the article, go to the show notes at www.origins.info and there are a few photographs in there that sort of back up the story as it goes along. Quite interesting, really. Like I said, I just find this stuff really fascinating. And for those of you who are keen Mysteries Abound podcast listeners will know that I actually mentioned the artefact of the hammer also in episode 91 in one of the stories I did there. I just sort of can't get this stuff out of my mind and when it gets a grip on me I just keep going with it. So I mentioned it in episode 92 in a different article of course and I have found another one. 10 Fascinating Artefacts of Mysterious Origin by Alan Boyle, and this comes from the listverse.com. A lot of things that archaeologists dig up out of the ground are fairly straightforward. We know what people did with arrowheads and pots. But occasionally we'll turn up something that leaves experts scratching their chins and wondering, what's that all about? Number 10. Middle Eastern Circles You may very well be familiar with the Nazca Lines in Peru, ancient geoglyphs only properly visible from above. Their popularity with ancient alien proponents is second only to Egypt's pyramids. Yet there's an older, more mysterious, and even more common version in the Middle East that gets a lot less attention. The wheels are circular stone structures built in the desert from Syria to Saudi Arabia. Believed to be at least 2,000 years old, the structures weren't rediscovered until the 1920s, after we've invented aeroplanes. An archaeologist working on the structures said that you can make out a vague pattern from the ground but you must ascend to at least 30 metres or 100 feet to view the structures clearly. The purpose of the structures is unclear. Some are clustered together and others stand alone. Some of the circles have spokes aligned with astronomical phenomena, while others are apparently random. They could be the remains of buildings or cemeteries, 
though the most common belief is that they had some sort of religious significance to the people that made them. Number 9. Fort Mountain A trail marker tells hikers in Georgia they are approaching a mysterious and prehistoric wall. The wall's builders are unknown. Its purpose is just as big a mystery. The loose rock wall measures around 270 metres or 885 feet long and up to 2 metres or 7 feet tall in some sections. About 30 pits are scattered along its length and one section contains the ruins of a gateway. It was built around 1600 years ago, though the pits may have been dug much later by European treasure hunters. The obvious theory behind the wall says it was used to defend the mountain from attack, but this seems unlikely. There's no water source, the wall is left very low in some places, and it completely ignores any strategic slopes. Other theories suggest the wall has some use in sun worship, or even marked the boundary of a haven for newlyweds to honeymoon. The wall zigzags in a way that matches patterns found on some Native American pottery. Its shape may follow the movement of celestial bodies, and the north end of the wall points to where the sun rises during the summer solstice. Cherokee legends about the wall suggest its builders were subterranean, tall, light-skinned, bearded, nocturnal, and moon-eyed. This is possibly a reference to the Hitichi tribes that used to live in the area, as they wore beards, dwelled in earth lodges that resembled caves. And if they were tall and enjoyed astronomy, then the explanation fits. Number 8. Derek Mahoney's Glastonbury Cross One of the many legends surrounding King Arthur is that monks from Glastonbury Abbey found his coffin in 1191. Alongside him was a lead cross engraved with Hic Iaset Sepultus Inclitus Rex Arthurius in Insula Avalonia, which translates to Here lies entombed the renowned King Arthur in the island of Avalon. Many believe that, if it existed, the cross was a hoax by the monks to encourage pilgrims to visit. Even so, a hoax from the 12th century is historically very valuable. The last record of the cross was in the 17th century. That meant experts were very keen to investigate when a man turned up at the British Museum in December 1981, claiming to have found it. Unfortunately, Derek Mahoney refused to hand the cross over after the museum staff first examined it. The museum called local authorities who owned the land where Mahoney had supposedly found the item and the council got a court order for the cross's return. Mahoney still refused. In April 1982, a judge put Mahoney in prison for two years, but said he'd be released immediately as soon as he revealed the cross's location. In January 1983, England's official solicitor, tasked with looking out for people unable to represent themselves, went to court to argue for Mahoney's release. Mahoney, oddly enough, argued that he should stay in prison and the official solicitor should mind his own business. The same scenario played out in the country's second highest court, which ruled that Mahoney should be released. Despite his continued protests, he was ejected from prison. 
It later turned out Mahoney had previously made moulds for lead toys and so had many of the skills needed to create such a cross. Even if he had faked it, he had done well enough to fool the experts who saw it, and well enough to convince authorities he should go to prison for it. Unfortunately, we may never know the truth, as the cross was never seen again. Number 7. The Unicorn Tapestries Six beautiful tapestries depicting the hunt of a unicorn are on permanent display at the Musée du Cluny in Paris. They've been called the Mona Lisa of woven artworks, but no one knows who created them. Despite their being made in the 15th or 16th century, no mention of the tapestries exists before 1814. No one took any notice of them until 1841, when the damp and nibbled items were rescued from their home in the Chateau de Boussac. Some clues to the history are to be found in the monograms on each corner, AE and AF, yet no one knows who they refer to. Five of the six tapestries feature a slim blonde lady, and we can only speculate on who she is. Many historians suggest it's Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII, who was married to King Louis XII of France for the last six months of his life. Curators see secular allusions to marriage, love and the desire for children that would back up that theory. Others suggest the seams reflect the five senses. In the first, the woman touches the unicorn, then she feeds a bird, smells flowers, plays music, and finally shows the unicorn his reflection. Christian scholars suggest the unicorn represents Christ being tamed by his mother, the Virgin Mary. Or if the tapestry's film appearance in the Gryffindor common room is to believe, they may represent an actual unicorn hunt. Number 6. Florida Peruvian Skulls In January 2012, the skulls of a man and boy were found during an excavation for a South Florida swimming pool. The smaller skull was a 10-year-old and still had soft tissue on the bone. Police were called to investigate, but this wasn't just some common crime. The flesh was mummified and the skulls were at least 800 years old. Stranger still, the skulls had a unique structure known as an Inca bone, which occurs mainly in native Peruvians. Other primitive artefacts, including woven cloth and slings, were found alongside the skulls. They may have been bought and left by tourists in the 1930s, before laws regulated the trade of such artefacts. Alternatively, migrant workers from Peru may have brought them as a link to their heritage. Either way, we'll probably never know how they ended up under someone's yard. Number 5. The Glosal Tablets In 1924, a farmer named Emil Freden found an underground chamber full of objects in one of his fields. They were strangely marked human bones, hermaphrodite idols, masks and several tablets engraved with an unusual language. Freyden put out an open invitation for people to come and dig. They did so for years, and thousands of artefacts were uncovered. Debate over the discoveries was so dramatic that the New York Times called it the Glosellian War, 
saying in 1927 that the whole of France was divided into two violently opposed opinions over whether the artefacts were genuine. Some archaeologists claimed that the items were from the Neolithic period and predated the Phoenician alphabet, from which the Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Arabic and Cyrillic alphabets evolved. If that was true, the finds would mean the cradle of Western civilization was in France, and not the Middle East. The battle went to the courts. Freyden sued the head of the Louvre for defamation. Police raided the farmhouse and arrested the farmer for fraud after discovering freshly carved tablets. But believers claimed the fake tablets were plants. A report by international experts called them all fakes, but it just made everyone dig their heels in further. Freyden was never convicted of anything. Modern tests say the bones range back as far as 300 BC to as recently as the 1600s. Glass at the site is from medieval France. The tablets themselves seem to match the earliest dates of the bones, making them over 2,000 years old. Their clay is chemically identical to the local clay, suggesting they originated there. Most now agree that the text appears to be a form of old Celtic. Yet there's still a mystery as to why so many unusual and varied items ended up in a featureless field. No other site like it has been found anywhere in Europe. Freyden himself stuck to his story for 80 years, taking any secrets to his grave when he died in 2010. Number 4. The Mystery Stone Construction workers digging near New Hampshire's Lake Winnipesaukee uncovered a very unusual item in 1872. It was a black stone egg about 10 centimetres tall, carved with images. It was described as remarkable and a wonder of the scientific world. Nothing similar has ever been found anywhere in the United States to this day. It's known as the Mystery Stone. The carvings offered few clues as to the stone's origins. The front of the egg shows a face. There's an ear of corn on the side, a circle containing depictions of animal parts, a spiral, a crescent moon, and various patterns made of lines and dots. There are holes drilled into the top and bottom, which are too regular to have been created by pre-19th century technology, suggesting the stone was crafted not long before it was found. No one recorded details about the stone's discovery. We don't know the exact site where it was found, or how deep it lay. The type of rock it's made from isn't usually found in New Hampshire. After close to 150 years of investigation, we now know no more than this. Someone created it for some reason, at some point, and it ended up buried. Number 3. Golden Hats some of the most unusual artefacts of Bronze Age Europe are four golden hats or cones, ranging in height from 30 centimetres to nearly a metre. The hats are made of almost 90% gold and are decorated with extremely elaborate concentric circles of symbols. The oldest known is the Berlin Cone, which was created around 1300 BC and discovered in 1835. It's covered in 1,739 sun and moon symbols, placing it at the limits of metalworking technology of its time. Among the suggested uses for the cones have been hats for suits of armour, 
ceremonial vases, decorations for a place of worship, and even hats for wizards, more properly called priest astronomers. A modern analysis of the decorations suggests the cones accurately portray solar and lunar cycles, thought first observed by astronomer Meton of Athens in the 5th century BC, meaning proto-Celtic cultures were centuries ahead of their time. Number 2. Egyptian Spider Art In 2013, archaeologists in Egypt discovered a stone panel engraved with what may be the earliest known depictions of spiders in the world. The panel is likely around 6,000 years old, making it older than the ancient Egyptian civilization. The suggestion that the drawings are spiders is tentative, but reasonable. The carved ovals with four thin bent legs sticking out of each side look very much like a stick spider picture. A star-like shape may be a web, and a comb-like rows of lines could be a web funnel. Dr Heather Lynn, an author and proponent of alternative archaeology, suggests the carvings actually represent the Sirius star system. Older star charts are known, and ancient people definitely like to look up. There's much more evidence for Egyptian astronomy than for an interest in spiders. There's also the possibility that both are correct, and some poor souls from 4000 BC went through their lives believing the sky was full of arachnids. And finally, number one, Aramumuru. The Incan doorway of Aramumuru in Peru is a large square carved into a surface of rock. It's seven metres on each side, smoothed into a flat surface on an outcrop. In the centre of the square at the bottom is an alcove a few feet wide and about as tall as a person. It looks like someone had started carving a building into the rock and just gave up. The door has gained a cult following among believers in the paranormal who say it's a magical portal. Locals say it leads to the underworld and can be opened by magicians with special keys or enhancements. Some say it opens at midnight and that there is a city on the other side. It's even been suggested as a gateway to a distant part of the universe. Could South American natives really have accomplished magical interstellar travel thousands of years ago? It would be nice if that's what they were attempting. The alternative is that someone was forced to give up their awesome construction project. And that's just a little bit sad. And if you'd like to see photographs of these 10 interesting, mysterious things, visit the show notes, episode 92 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. They're all there. Quite worth a look if you're interested. Anyway, I think I'm mysterious objected out, if there is such a term, and let's go on to something a little bit different.
Plans to build a new road in Iceland ran into trouble recently when campaigners warned that it would disturb elves living in its path. Construction work had to be stopped while a solution was found. From the www.bbc.com website, an article by Emma-Jane Kirby. Why Icelanders are wary of elves living beneath the rocks. From his desk at the Icelandic Highways Department in Reykjavik, Peter Matheson smiles at me warmly from behind his glasses, but firmly. Let's get this straight before we start. I do not believe in elves, he says. I raise my eyebrows slightly and incline my head towards his computer screen which is displaying the plans for a new road in a neighbouring town. There are two yellow circles marked on the plans, one that reads Elf Church and another that reads Elf Chapel. Peter sighs. Okay, he acknowledges wearily, but it's not every day in Iceland that we divert roads for elves. It's just in this case we were warned that elves were living in some of the rocks in the path of the road. Well, we have to respect that belief. He grins shyly and picks up his car keys. Come on, I'll show you where the elves live, he said indulgently. Surveys suggest that more than half of Icelanders believe in, or at least entertain the possibility of the existence of the Hildebok, the hidden people. Just to be clear, Icelandic elves are not the small green pointy-eared variety that helps Santa pack the toys at Christmas. They're the same size as you and I. They're just invisible to most of us. Mainly they're a peaceable breed, but if you treat them with disrespect, for example by blasting dynamite through their rock houses and churches, they're not reticent about showing their displeasure. During our car journey, Peter tells me several stories about how elves are suspected to be behind bulldozer breakdowns and a series of workmen's accidents. As I step out of the car at the site of the elf church, a vicious gust of icy wind punches me full in the face, making me stagger backwards onto the black volcanic rock. Iceland's rugged landscape is no bucolic ideal. The very ground boils and spits irrationally. The surrounding craggy black mountains fester menacingly, and above the sky is constantly herniated by the iron-grey clouds it strains to hold up. It's a visceral roar and brutal beauty which makes Heathcliff's Wuthering Heights look like a prissy pastoral watercolour. You can't live in this landscape and not believe in a force greater than you, explains Professor of Folklore. Adelheide Gudmosteder, when I visit her at the university. She looks at me imploringly. Please don't portray Icelanders as uneducated peasants who believe in fairies. But look around you and you'll understand why the power of folklore here is so strong, she says. It is, of course, also strong in the tourism trade. On the main road into the town from the airport... Elves live here, signs try to lure the fanciful into spending a few thousand kroner, a few pounds, on a tour of an elf village, a CD of mystical music, or for the less whimsical, perhaps, I had sex with an elf in Iceland, t-shirt. There's even an elf school in the capital, at which I dutifully enrolled. Magnus Scarfedinson, the headmaster, a rotund, ebullient chap who ate large quantities of breakfast cereal during my one-on-one lesson, 
had regrettably never seen an elf himself, although he did own an old cooking pot that apparently had once made stews in an elf kitchen before the bottom rusted away. His eyes twinkled so wickedly throughout the class that at the end I asked if he wasn't some kind of malevolent fairy himself. Peter and I have now reached the twelve-foot-high jagged rock that's apparently home to the elf chapel. I scour it closely, but apart from an insect or two scuttling to find some shelter in its moss-encrusted crevices, I can see no signs of any life, mythological or other. Peter eyes me suspiciously. I could tell you about our family elf, he begins tentatively. I encourage him to tell his tale and learn that Peter's family had a protective elf in the wild north of the country who brought them good fortune. When he'd gone on a camping trip to the isolated area, his father asked him to go and pay his respects to the elf and to thank her. But I don't believe in elves, so I sort of forgot, he says. The next day, despite the overcast sky and drizzle, he woke up so badly blistered by what appeared to be sunburn that he could barely stand. As we turned into the blustering wind, we catch each other's eye. We both have one hand gripped onto the rock with the desperation of gamblers clinging to a lucky charm. We walk back towards the car in a smug complicity of being almost non-believers. And if you visit the show notes, there's a couple of photographs of the rock, of the headmaster, of the pot, and Emma Jane Kirby's diploma of Elf and Hidden People Research Study from the Elf School. With the following story, you may definitely want to visit the show notes, have a look at the short video and the photographs that are associated with this article. From the io9.com website, an article by Rosella Lorenzi. Why does this mummy appear to open and close her eyes? In Sicily, there's a very spooky mummy of a girl who died in 1920. Occasionally she can be seen to open and close her eyes. Italian researchers now say there's a perfectly reasonable explanation and it has nothing to do with her being among the undead. Recorded in time-lapse photos and videos, the creepy phenomenon has been the subject of various speculations for some years. This week Italian newspapers again reported that Rosalia Lombardo A two-year-old girl who died of pneumonia in 1920 moves her eyelids several times during the day, slightly opening them to reveal intact blue eyes. One of the world's best-preserved mummies, 
Rosalia is the most famous among some thousands of mummies lining the catacombs beneath the Capuchin convent in Palermo, Sicily. Nicknamed Sleeping Beauty, she looks like a two-year-old baby taking a nap. Poking above her blanket, her peaceful face is framed by curly blonde hair, while a ribbon is still tied around her head. Although amazingly mummified, Rosalia doesn't open and shut her eyes. It's an optical illusion produced by the light that filters through the side windows, which during the day is subject to change, Dario Piombino Mascali, curator of the Capuchin Catacombs, said in a statement on Thursday. He noted the mummy was moved slightly and shifted to a horizontal position in a humidity-free glass coffin. The new position makes it easier to see Rosalia's eyelids. They are not completely closed, and indeed they never have been, Piombino Mascali said. The anthropologist unearthed Rosalia's real secret in 2009 when he found the mysterious formula used for her amazing preservation. While most of the mummies buried in the catacombs were treated by the monks and basically desiccated by the dry environment, Rosalia was mummified artificially. To preserve her for eternity, Rosalia's heartbroken father turned to embalmer Alfredo Salafia, a Sicilian taxidermist and embalmer who died in 1933. Salafia never revealed the chemicals used in his preservative. In 2009, Piombino Mascali found a handwritten manuscript in which Salafia listed the ingredients used to mummify Rosalia. The formula read, one part glycerin, one part formalin, saturated with both zinc sulfate and chloride, and one part of an alcohol solution saturated with salicylic acid. The procedure was very simple, consisting of a single point injection without any drainage or cavity treatment. The concoction worked perfectly. Formalin killed bacteria, glycerin kept her body from over-drying, salicylic acid killed fungi, while zinc salts basically petrified Rosalia's body. The new glass case will help preserve Rosalia for many more years. It was designed to block any bacteria or fungi. Thanks to a special film, it also protects the body from the effects of light, Piombino Mascali said. He hopes that from now on, tourists will stop taking pictures and making up totally unfounded stories about the child mummy. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe, 
at www.talkshoe.com. We have a Facebook page which is www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website www.origins.info. And I'd like to thank these people for supporting the podcast by making a donation to its cause, even though the weeks were passing by with no podcast being produced because I was so tied up with work and other things. So a huge thank you to Sky Norton, Sean Yarnell, Stephen Maxwell, Andrew Powell, Cameron Huff, Uriel Correa, Bob Flood, Joyce McMillan, Timothy Perrot, David Lohman and Andrew Cole. A big thank you everyone, your support is greatly appreciated. Singapore is rather a peaceful place in general, but a recent development is actually scaring the living daylights out of residents. It all started when someone discovered an abandoned doll on the side of a busy street. If you've watched your share of horror flicks, you probably know exactly how scary dolls can be. From the www.oddityscentral.com website, an article written by Sumitra, Creepy, allegedly possessed doll terrorises Singapore residents. And if you visit the show notes after the podcast, there are some photographs there you may want to look at of this creepy, possessed doll. This particular doll is as creepy as they come. You only need to take one look at its picture to realise something's not right about it. It was found clad in a very shabby-looking stained lace dress with an equally filthy face that was blindfolded. The cloth covering its eyes had Arabic writing on it, which translates to Bismillah, or in the name of Allah. Rumour has it that the blindfold keeps the devil inside the doll in check. If you undo it, you invoke the curse and the doll will follow you home. Pictures of the doll with and without the blindfold were posted on Reddit and the story soon became an internet sensation. According to the post that accompanies the pictures, the doll is possessed, it can move on its own and it's sometimes heard talking in a woman's voice. Some say that the doll can be heard talking when it's alone in a room and is found with its head turned in a different direction. It is said that it spoke in a Malay language and it sounded like an adult female. 
original owner found that the only way to get rid of it and make sure it won't come back is to cover its eyesight, the Reddit poster wrote. The curse is rumoured to have passed on to someone else who found it and untied the cloth unknowingly. Turns out the Arabic thing meant bismillah. I think it's to trap whatever jinn or curse is inside from coming out or following the owner back home. Others speculate it is a product of black magic. Reddit users have reacted to the post in a variety of ways. Some are cynical, while others are offering advice on how to destroy the doll. Burn the effing doll, wrote one user. Another suggested an alternative method to get rid of it. Here's what you do. You pour liquid nitrogen onto it and run it over with a massive tractor. If it's still not dead, you glue it with industrial glue into a steel box and bury that shit under a quarry. After extreme reactions started to pour in, the original poster edited his message with a disclaimer. Nothing here should be taken seriously, as I don't have any valid or scientific proof of it. It was all rumour by words of mouth and on the internet. I'm just sharing it. The doll's whereabouts are currently unknown. It has been reported missing ever since the pictures came out. A few bizarre incidents were linked to the disappearance of the doll. A freaky suicide and a murder case. But most Singaporeans believe that they might just be a coincidence. Anyway, have a look at the show notes. Have a look at the doll. Make up your own mind. And now to a website that has fast become one of the favourites for the listeners to the Mysteries Abound podcast. A number of people have told me that they regularly visit this site to read the stories contained there. The www.creepypasta.com website. This story is called Rabbits in the Creek. I am writing this because my family won't talk about it anymore. I'm the only one who can't seem to forget. I was raised on the outskirts of Preston, a small town in southern Idaho with a population of around 5,000. My more immediate community was an isolated, dead-end dirt road called Bear Creek. Less than 20 families lived on the Bear Creek. I didn't mind being so isolated. I grew up in the comfort of wide fields and close neighbours that only rural people know. We were a Mormon community, very church-centred, very community-centred. All the young girls, myself included, were part of the young women's group, and all of the boys were members of the local Boy Scout troop, which doubled as a church group in our area. 
We had 4th of July parties at the local ballpark and swam in the nearby reservoir. It was a good, quiet community. My house, a 92-year-old farmhouse built by my great-great-grandfather, was situated on a small hill, surrounded by a wide grass field on one side and a snaking dirt road on the other. Across the road was the creek bottoms. Southern Idaho is categorised in a desert climate, so not much grows outside of the irrigated fields beside sagebush and burrs. The creek bottoms were the exception. The creek fed the growth of a thick tangle of pussy willow bushes. In the late fall, we used to go down into the bottoms and pick the white, cottony pussy willow seeds to decorate the fences of our driveway. Being so isolated, it wasn't uncommon for animals to come down from the mountains. We had a female moose who brought her calf down and lived in our orchard every winter. And the occasional lion wasn't unheard of either. The summer when I turned eight, I remember because it was the same year as my baptism, a smaller mountain lion was spotted several times in our area. We weren't worried. The big cats stayed away from the farms and usually moved on when the area didn't yield enough food. The same summer my neighbour, Peyton, was working on his Eagle Scout project. He loved National Geographic and thought it would be pretty cool to try putting together a National Geographic submission on our little creek bottoms. The young lion that happened to be in our area at the same time made him exceptionally excited. He decided he wanted to try and get pictures of the lion and email the National Geographic team for advice. They recommended setting up an automatic camera that takes shots every couple of seconds in an area the lion was known to visit. They also recommended setting some kind of bait so the lion was more likely to come by. No one in the creek liked the idea of live bait or carrion, so we came up with a different kind of bait. We decided to set up an audio recording of a dying rabbit and play it on a loop through a set of speakers hidden in the willows. I remember when everyone was down in the bottoms testing the speakers and I heard the noise for the first time. The sound of a dying rabbit is horrible. It's been described as being almost identical to the sound of a screaming child. If you've never heard it yourself, there's plenty of recordings available online. It's worth a listen. The camera was set up, the speakers were set up, everything was perfect. Peyton explained that he would allow the camera and recording to play uninterrupted for a week, and then he would go and check on it. This would give him time for our scent to fade from the bottoms and encourage the lion to come closer. At first I was worried about the noise. It was a truly horrible noise, and our house was the closest to the set-up point in the bottoms. My father assured me that the noise wouldn't reach as far as our house, and I was relieved when we arrived home that night, and he was correct. The bottoms were far enough away that I couldn't hear anything. I remember Peyton the next day at church. He was fidgety and excited to check on the equipment, but he had to wait a week, which everybody kept reminding him. He couldn't risk going down too early and scaring the lion away for good. That night I woke up to an awful noise. I sat ramrod straight in my bed with my eyes wide in the dark, hands clutched so hard my palms bore the indent of my fingernails for hours after. I knew that noise. 
It was the recording of the rabbit. It sounded faint and far off, like it really could have been coming from the bottoms. But that was impossible. Because the recording had been going all night the previous day, and I hadn't heard a thing. I didn't sleep that night. I was too scared to get out of bed and wake my parents. The recording played over and over again. I had the loop memorised. In the morning I stumbled into the kitchen for breakfast. My mum and dad were sitting at the kitchen table. They too had dark rings under their eyes. I hadn't been the only one who'd heard it. Mum was convinced that the equipment must have been broken. She wanted to go down into the bottoms to check it out. Dad refused. He was a kind, gentle man and didn't want to stir up unnecessary drama. He was sure there had been a strong wind last night and the wind was carrying the noise farther than its natural reach. He told us to listen. We did. He was right. We couldn't hear it now. We forgot about it and went about our daily goings. The next night it happened again. I stayed up in bed with my back to the wall. The screaming was even louder than before. But this time something was different. It was lower pitched than I remember. And parts of the loop were slowed down, as if the recording were warped in places. At times the loop did not loop naturally, and instead picked up at random place in the middle. My mum didn't mention anything at the breakfast table. Both her and my dad seemed tense. The third night I mustered the courage to stand beside my bedroom window and look out into the yard. For a moment I stood, rooted to the spot, my hands shaking no matter how hard I clenched them. The noise sidled in through the cracks in the window. I watched the outline of the trees in the yard. Perfectly still, not even the slightest breeze stirred in their branches. My mum announced that she would be going to visit her sisters in the town next day and would probably spend the night there. She invited me to come along, but I was a daddy's girl at heart and chose to stay at the farm. I took mum's place beside dad in their bed that night, but even that didn't help. I didn't think my dad was asleep either, for he was unnaturally still the whole night. We began to hear the noise during the day too. I was drawing with chalk on the sidewalk when it happened. My shoulders tensed and the hairs on my back of my neck prickled. There was only one scream, a short high-pitched one, and then the recording fell silent. It happened again several times throughout the day, but never the whole loop, just clips from it. Later that evening, Peyton's dad came up the driveway on his four-wheeler. He said he was looking for their dog, a sweet yellow lab who had been missing since that morning. Dad said he was sorry and that we hadn't seen her. I stared at him, silently begging him to mention the recording. But he didn't. He was a quiet man after all. He didn't want to bring up any unnecessary drama. Mum stayed away the whole week. Dad and I didn't sleep. By Saturday the screaming could be heard constantly though it seemed to have deviated from the familiar loop entirely. I didn't recognise any of it. Sometimes the screams were thin and long, other times they were hardly more than growls. Once while my dad had been heating up meatloaf for lunch, the noise rose into such a rancorous din that he dropped the plate and it shattered. I pressed my hands over my ears where I sat at the table and squeezed my eyes shut, but it didn't help. 
The noise forced its way in through the cracks of my fingers and pinched to my throat and rattled in my ribcage. The din lasted for a whole minute, then fell silent. Dad was shaking. That was the last we heard of the noise that day. Peyton came by Saturday evening to ask permission to cross our road to collect the equipment. He was so excited. I watched him disappear into the creek bottoms with a sense of tired relief. After the equipment was gone, it would all stop. I couldn't wait to get a full night's sleep. Not a minute later, I spotted Peyton coming back up from the creek. I was confused. It had taken us much longer than that to set up the camera and speakers, so I'd only assumed it would take just as long to collect them. My breath stilled when Peyton came closer. He didn't look right. His eyes were wide and his face pale. Something wet dribbled from his chin and onto his shirt. I later realised it was vomit. My dad caught him before he fell and demanded to know what had happened. Peyton couldn't speak. He just cried. I looked after Peyton as both my dad and his dad went into the bottoms. They were gone a long time. When they returned, their faces were grim and they smelled funny. I noticed red on my dad's hands. I asked what was wrong, but they brushed right past me and immediately called the police. Nobody could tell me what had happened. I sat on the couch as a blur of neighbours and police officers swirled around me. At one point an officer placed something on the kitchen table and left. I looked into the kitchen curiously. It was the camera from the bottoms. I wished I hadn't looked. The camera was a little banged up. Tiny scratches and dents covered the plastic casing. When I lifted it, my hands stuck to the plastic. Something tacky and odorous covered the screen. But it turned on fine. The first set of photos were normal. Just the pussy willows cast green in the glow of the night setting. As I continued to click through them, they quickly became strange. At one point the camera angle changed, as if the camera had been knocked from its post. Grass now obscured most of the frame. Flecks of red appeared on the lens and remained for the rest of the sets. One photo made me pause. There was a figure in this one or half of a figure, as most of the upper torso hadn't made it into the frame. I thought it could be human, but it didn't look like it should be standing upright. Its legs were twisted, like an animal, and it seemed to be having difficulty supporting itself in an upright position. Beside the legs, a long, thin arm hung. Whatever it was must have been stooped over, for its fingers hung below its crooked knees. The next set was different. It was as if the camera had been picked up and was now being held. The first photo was of the bottoms at night. The next startled me. I had to look closely before deciding what it was. A rabbit had been laid in the bushes, but its ears and most of its scalp had been peeled away. The next was of the same rabbit, but a thin dark hand was holding it up against the sky. Its limp body hung like something from a nightmare. In the following photos, more rabbits joined the one, each with their ears and scalp removed. Then a cat. Then more cats. Then a dog. The yellow lab. Then the lion. The following photo was of seven rabbits, three cats, one dog, and the lion all laid out in a row facing the same way. 
Their arms and legs had been arranged as if they were marching, like some parade. All of their scalps had been removed and tiny white glints of their skull could be seen. The last photo was overly bright, like the photo had been taken too close with the flash on. An eye dominated the frame, but it was yellowed and crusty and had a bar pupil like a horse. In the bottom corner the edge of a mouth could be seen. No lips, just teeth, sharp and little, with wide gaps of red gum between them. I wish I hadn't looked. I heard my dad talking to the police outside. They said the speakers had malfunctioned. The recording had only played the first night. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.